Wawa well, Lemonade is the greatest thing oh. in the world. Well, all right. This is Jacob Ross with JLB Morelia. This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And you're listening to the Herpeticulture Podcast. Enjoy. We are going to kick the tires and light the fires, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode 105 of the Herpeticulture Podcast. I am Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I am Phil Wolf of Knobtails.ig. Hey. Back hey. again. It's another week, another episode. Uh, we are joined again by Dr. Zach Lofman. Uh, do you pronounce it Lofman or Laufman? Uh... That's the immortal question of my life. Because um, I hear Lucas pronounce it Laufman, and I'm always wondering if I'm... Yeah. Print. I was told growing up <clears throat> that it's actually... My dad pronounces it Loafman, mm-hmm. like loaf of bread. Uh, but um, one day I was sitting on my uh, in my wife's parents' house looking through the Time Life book of Ireland, mm-hmm. of all things. And I was like, holy crap, there's my name. Like, what? Nice. And turns out it actually should be pronounced Lockman, which that sounds a hell of a lot cooler than Loafman. Yeah. But I've gone with Loafman my whole damn life, so it's Loafman. Like Gaelic or something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it literally means man of the lake. And, and there's, like, not a better name for a guy who studies crawdads than that. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, I love it. But anyway. That's cool, man. I'm going to call you Lockman from now on. All right. There we go. The lock, lock man monster. Yeah, I, I just whatever the hell people say in my general. I'm not the guy that corrects people. I just go with it. Yeah, people so. call me Jason all the time. I'm like, sure. Mm-hmm. I get Paul a lot. I don't know why. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> That's interesting. See. I am so frazzled and like disorganized right now. Okay. Yeah, we have uh, sponsors that we should probably talk about. We should, uh, and they include. Steve Snakeshwary and his Venom Hot Sauces. If you haven't tried them, you definitely have to, because uh, they are delicious. And uh, Sean Wagner at MP Cages and Exotics. Sean's our boy. Sean is taking small orders currently, uh, so he's in the process of, of moving across the states, uh, trying to get all the stuff, all his ducks in a row to make that happen, so I think he's kind of been on a little bit of a pause as far as cage building and stuff, but... Uh, definitely go hit him up <clears throat> and get some of the best damn cages you can find because Sean's awesome. Hell yeah. We love our racks. Most definitely. So that is it. But we, uh, so we had Zach on not that long ago, talked about South American epistoglyphs, epistoglyphs, rear fang, colubrids. And I really wanted to have a crypto episode, <clears throat> so we're going to get into some of that tonight. And then he recently released a uh, a paper that's really interesting too that I want to talk about. So, kind of a lot to sort of unpack here. Um, but crypto is a fair is it? I guess I can't really say fairly common, but it is is not uncommon uh, in a lot of collections and in the grand scheme of like the pathogens club you know it's up there with nido and paramixo and that kind of thing so definitely want to get into that a bit uh but i guess we can it, for, it's not a virus 
Is it yeah. is it is a parasite or a bacteria? It, it is. It's technically a a, proto, a protist, mm -hmm. uh, and if 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 you get into the wonderful world of taxonomy, there's the if there's one group of organisms on the planet that are the redheaded stepchildren of taxonomy, it's the protists of the world. <laughs> um, so. Some people like to say that's a kingdom. Some people basically say protists, implying single-celled uh, organisms that usually have a very simple life history unless they're parasites. And then the parasites are like, have the absolute most complex, crazy life cycles. It's, it, that, it, it's ridiculous. But things that are related, uh, it, it's, it's in the group... Um, Epicomplexa, which includes things like malaria. Mm -hmm. So uh, those kind of organisms that have fairly complex life histories, that's what crypto's related to. Okay. Because that's, I mean, that's one of the things that's that makes it kind of hard to, to deal with is it's not a virus uh, and it's not like something you can deworm for like you would with flagell or panicure or whatever. Yeah. Um, but in, I mean, in the, in terms of other pathogens like nido and paramixo and that kind of thing like where does this rank as far as how common it is um it's one of those bugs that if you start really doing a deep dive and going into rabbit holes and doing what i had to do and and basically snatch every bit of literature you can get um one thing that you kind of become aware of quickly and it, it it scares the crap out of you is that it's probably far more common in people's collections than we want to admit it's one of those uh and the reason why and we all know because of covid now the whole idea of an asymptomatic carrier mm -hmm. um it, is that many snakes there's a there's a growing amount of evidence that's kind of pointing towards them harboring cryptosporidium uh, and shedding out oocysts, which is basically what's released in the poo that's really contagious, mm -hmm. and not showing any indication or symptom that they have it. Uh, and that's what makes crypto kind of deadly, if you will, for a, a large collection in particular, because you can, if you don't do, you can even do proper quarantining for 30, 60, 90 days. And if you have one of these asymptomatic carriers and they're not stressed, um, they're not going to show any symptoms. And then you move the animal from your quarantine into your main collection. And then uh, it just takes that animal undergoing stress and a lowering of the immune system. And the next thing you know, boom, you've got crypto in your collection. And, and one of the things that's really interesting about it is much like Nido, I would say, used to be or maybe still is. It's kind of like the dirty secret of herpetoculture, mm -hmm. like, like um, that I had crypto and I don't want to let people know. I mean, you should definitely, if you're getting, if you're moving an animal on and crypto is in your collection, it is without question the right thing to do to let people know uh, that maybe not that snake has crypto, but it was around snakes that did uh, because you you can go you can have a situation like what I had when I first experienced this, which is a, a very you know what I presume to be sterile collection that didn't have crypto in it, uh, 
And then two months later, I have snakes dying all over the place and and dealing with this kind of wildfire of doom that was um, crypto exploding throughout the collection. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular like group of snakes or group of lizards or whatever that is more prone or maybe it came from or spawned from in you know captive husbandry? That's a good question. Uh, there's definitely certain groups uh, or certain uh, species that crypto has been documented in for a real long time. Mm-hmm. So uh, leopard geckos definitely come to mind. Um, uh, the crypto has been in leopard geckos for over two decades. Uh, and, and the the leopard gecko guide that um, Tremper and Devojali put out, you know, there's a whole little subsection in there about crypto, and that was published way back when. Uh, in hognose snakes now, uh, western hognose snakes in particular, uh, there's definitely concern for cryptosporidium in, in that group. But in reality, uh, crypto can pop up pretty much in any squamate reptile. It's been documented in turtles. Um, it, it, it just basically, it's kind of, it, it's just present. It's and not the thing that, at all. It's not juicy at all. And what's really interesting is with cryptosporidium, there's there's two species currently that are super important to squamate reptiles, snakes and lizards. Yeah. Um, the one that kind of shows up in snakes a lot is cryptosporidium serpentis, and that's an organism that's going to infect the stomach primarily. Uh, and then there's another species. Um, some people call it Cryptosporidium sarophyllum, but in reality, it should be called Cryptosporidium verinae. So those are the same thing. Uh, and verinae is more of a lower GI tract parasite. So it ends up getting down into the intestine uh, proper. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of people like don't realize is you can totally have a snake that has serpentis or verinae, or it has both. You can have a lizard that has Serpentis or Veronae or both. So uh, it's not tax necessarily taxa-specific. And then the other thing that's neat, for lack of a better word, is that there's absolutely undescribed species of Cryptosporidium that are out in people's collections right now that are not Serpentis or Veronae, that are basically new to science. Mm-hmm. It's just this is so... There's not that many people studying it um, so the result is you have taxa going undescribed that, you know, may be more common or more pathogenic than the two that actually have names. Um, we, we realize that here at West Liberty, because one of the ways that you determine it's cryptosporidium is you get a fecal sample and then you do this, you know, relatively straightforward genetics process. Now it used to be a big deal, but now, you know, we have freshmen doing it, um, <laughs> here it's called PCR. Uh, yeah. And so when we found out we had it here in the zoo science collection in 2018, a lot of the methods I realized we could actually do in house. And I, you know, I'm, I'm an ecologist. And by the way, this is my disclaimer. I am not claiming to be the all knowing czar of crypto. Uh, <laughs> I, I just had to deal with it. And uh, I have a lot of um, colleagues now, veterinarians, people like that, who have basically helped me along the way. And now I have grad students studying it. To kind of get at what we had, I wanted to know which of the two, Veronae or Serpentis, we had. We, we took some stool samples 
from some snakes and we were actually able to, to isolate DNA and then do the process that enables you to identify it. It was really interesting as we got back a hit that told us we had Serpentis, which we knew. But then the other thing is we got Cryptosporidium spa, which is biology speak for it's a crypto. It's not Serpentis, but it's a crypto. And then using the genetic sequences, we actually had three different spas in the gastrointestinal tract of the, the snake that had died. Uh, so that's what I'm getting at with that could have been Serpentis because of the, the nature of, you know, molecular phylogenetics and things like that. But mm -hmm. at the same time, it could have been undescribed species in the gut of a corn snake living in a science building in northern West Virginia. So right. and when, when you say spa, yeah. you're you're referring to like taxon taxonomical nomenclature, like SSP subspecies. Type yes. Thing. Okay. Yeah. And, and if you think about a reptile show <laughs> you, where you have importer tables um, and you have people holding on to animals and then they give the animal back and then they go to the next table yeah. and then they go and they hold another animal. Like, um, I will say that dealing with cryptosporidium made me look at reptile shows in a completely different way uh, because you basically have all these animals from across the planet coming together into one spot. Uh, and the spores are ridiculously con uh, uh, contagious. Basically, you can get them on your fingers, um, handle the animal, and then they get transferred to the animal. You put the animal in an enclosure. It gets wet. Uh, that spore falls off of the water bowl, and then they consume it. And the next thing you know, you now have crypto. So it's very easy for crypto to go from one individual to another or from one species to another unless the absolute utmost hygiene is being practiced. Now, between the two, does the Serpentis effect, like, is do you get the, do, are animals that have both, like, say a snake gets the Varane, is it just as, as dangerous to them as, like, Serpentis would be? Like, is it the same effect, just a different location in the body that it affects? Um, there seems to be a species level effects with cryptosporidium so one thing that's kind of interesting going back to the hognose snakes is that the species in hognose snakes that seems to be doing more damage is actually varinae not serpentis hmm. uh but but that being said uh serpentis will wipe out a collection of pantherophis faster than anything um so kind of going back to the beginning as to how i even got into this because I keep making reference to it, is in the winter of um, 2018, so it would have been early February, here at the university, we have this large collection of animals. And uh, we had a couple very large grow-out racks that we had um, roughly 40 corn snakes in, some false water cobras in, and then some random pitchophis uh, bull snakes in there. And uh, immediately adjacent to that, we had some animal plastics, big PVC enclosures. And uh, in those, we had pythons. Um, at the time, we had womas, I believe. I'm trying to think back to that. And bretoli. Mm -hmm. And then we also had black-tailed kribos uh, in, in adjacent enclosures. So, like, that was the wall that I'm going to be talking about. And I had a student come to me, because um, my office isn't far away from the snake lab, and they basically said, hey, we think one of the corn snakes regurgitated. And 
I was like, well, that's weird. You know, we we never had a regurgitation ever. Um, and so I went into the room, and sure enough, there's the kind of deflated, mucus-covered, gross, puked-up mouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so at the time, I thought, okay, well, maybe it's too big. Maybe it got too cold because it was wintertime. You know, there's all kinds of reasons as to why a snake will regurgitate. Right, normal uh, stuff that yeah. we would normally just, you know, go through the uh, the checklist in our mind. Yeah, exactly. And it was that was from a feeding the day before. So fast forward 48 hours from that point. So we're three days later. And then that same student came over to my office. It's like, um, like 15 of them regurgitated. And I was like, oh, crap, because that's not necessarily temperature. Could be temperature, uh, but I would expect them to have regurgitated in the 24 hours in between yeah. uh, if it was a temperature thing. And so um, I've got this book it's it's the veterinary manual for reptiles it's mater's reptiles medicine and surgery so i of course go to the back of it and it's kind of you can kind of flip through it and i'd heard of crypto i i knew in the back of my brain for some reason crypto is related to animals regurgitating and so i grabbed the book read the crypto chapter and then that's when i saw and and first learned about the whole their their um the distension that will show up in the middle part of the stomach. And we'll get into what's going on there in a minute. And there were some images in the book that showed actually a corn snake. And that's what we had regurgitating. So I went and you know put on gloves, did all that kind of stuff, and started picking up these corn snakes and looking at them. And sure enough, about half of them had, I mean, they were I could have taken their picture and put it right into the into Mater's book. Mm-hmm. And so then I had a real strong hunch that's what it was. And so I didn't. I was ignorant to this and started reading. And then that's when I started to read, basically, this is pure doom. Get a flamethrower and torch everything. Like that was kind of the, <laughs> what everything was saying. Um, you know, doom, 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 bad, bad, bad. Uh, and to be honest, it really was. Uh, we, we isolated the animals the best we could. I actually took them all down to, secondary quarantine also known as my crayfish lab and set them up in the back room there and um the animals that were showing the distension uh they not only started to do the regurgitation at that point but they also started to have liquefied feces and when i say liquefied feces uh talking like full-blown liquid (laughs) Um, straight water yeah spray painting like bad um and so we knew we had an issue at that point, and then subsequently, other snakes started to regurgitate. And um, this is where I got real interested because what ended up happening was, if you didn't know a little bit about evolution and snake evolution and taxonomy, you would have just you, you wouldn't have picked up on what was going on in the room. But what was really interesting is the bull snakes that were in the rack; they got it almost within a week of the corn snakes showing symptoms, the the bulls were showing symptoms. Um, And then the biggest heartache uh, to to me, uh, not that I wanted any of the animals to die, but we had these beautiful, perfect blacktail Kribos. They were both about seven and a half feet long and adults. And everybody loved them because they were like puppy dogs. And then sure enough, the Kribos started regurgitating and, and, and shedding. Oh, uh, but what was interesting 
because you got to look at this through the eyes of scientists, as I realized very quickly, we're having no response in our pythons, like none, and they're right next to them. Um, and then the false water cobras, they weren't having a response, an obvious response either. So if you know things about evolution, the, the falsies are in this like one radiation that's related to the corn snakes, crebos, and bull snakes, but distantly. And obviously, pythons are a completely different radiation of snakes. So there seemed to be an in infection seemed to be related to evolutionary lineage, which was kind of intriguing to me. Uh, very, very yeah. intriguing. Because I thought, oh, God, the whole room's going to go down. Mm -hmm. And no, I'm going to spare you all the details, but uh, dealing with this was horrific. The next three months, we basically moved every animal out. Um, we had every room in this science building had snakes in it, but we had to think in a way, like think forward, because I didn't want to infect rooms with crypto per se. So we had to very quickly come up with a way to find out, do the damn snakes have crypto or not? Uh, and to get everybody um, sampled genetically would be somewhat expensive. Um, and so I learned how to do the, the old school way, which proves to be pretty lucrative, which is this microbiology technique where you get the feces and then you do this thing called acid fast staining. And I have, I work with two microbiologists, so they, they were nerding out. This was like somebody <laughs> bringing me a snake. Like, nice. nice. <laughs> you know, they're like, we're useful. This is cool. So <laughs> <laughs> they went down to the lab and we were acid fast staining everybody. And, um, that it was very easy to determine who had crypto and who didn't? Because when you do that that technique, the spores they they just turn bright red and purple. It's actually in a macabre way very pretty. So you know we were able to to basically do the fecal exam, and then that's when I found out about these things called antigen tests. Um, and we all know what antigen tests are now because if you had a COVID test, that's what a COVID test is. So basically, it looks for the presence of cryptosporidium protein in the feces. And so we bought a ton of those. And not only were we using the, the slides, but we were then using the antigen tests. And the antigen tests uh, were about, they're about $20 a piece, but much, much faster than the slides. The only problem is you can get a false positive and you can get a false negative. So we had to kind of go through that. But ultimately we ended up getting everybody out of the room. And then the big deal about crypto, which if you think you have crypto, this is the thing that you must must take to heart, is that it is insanely easy to spread it. And one of the best vectors of cryptosporidium is the keeper, um, because you're the individual that's basically cleaning out the enclosures, getting the spores on your hands, and then you go and clean out another enclosure, and you've just inoculated that enclosure with the spores. Mm -hmm. And when, a, when an animal is shedding the spores and it defecates, it's shedding hundreds of thousands, and in most of the times, millions of spores per fecal um, movement. So you you have this this vector in you, and then you also have the vector in uh, everybody's favorite that everybody who has a snake collection inevitably gets, which are we have a tendency to call them fruit flies, but they're actually probably not fruit flies they're probably these little guys called ford flies uh which 
you can tell the difference between them and a fruit fly because the forids, when they land on something, they just run like a, they're very neurotic when they land. Whereas a true fruit fly just kind of wanders. Well, they're attracted to poop. And there's been plenty of studies done with horses and things like that. And one of my graduate students, um, we had planned on doing this study, but COVID kind of nixed it. So future grad student out there listening to this, if you want to come to West Liberty and do the study, it's waiting for you. But we're going to actually study how the flies transfer the spores. But those little flies that fly from one crap pile to another, if they go from one enclosure to another, they can then inoculate that enclosure with the spores that they get on, on their bodies. So, so it is through physical yeah. touch necessary. It's not yes. necessarily airborne. Nope. It's, it's by direct contact. By direct contact. Okay. Like pollination on it. Flies in the how long? How long does it last out of a out of a host or out of you know feces or whatever? Going off of what's been studied with other species of Cryptosporidium, it seems like it has a pretty long shelf life. So, uh, if you're one of those keepers that doesn't get the poop out within, you know, we all would like to think we get it out within a day, but who really is able to do that? Right. <laughs> so, uh, but if you have a fecal mass in there for up to 10 days, it's totally shedding spores. And, and the, the real problem becomes if that fecal mass dries out, we've all done it. You go to yeah. like pick up that and it goes to dust. Well, that dust, you just basically aerosoled mm -hmm. the spores. Right. Right. So, but yeah. Well, that's odd. The thing with like the sort of the mass die off, though, is I mean, if you have animals that are asymptomatic, you would think there would have to be something that would trigger that to sort of take hold and and they, yeah, they lose out to it. So, what would like? Why would a group like that all of a sudden die within the same time frame of of, of each other like that? Yeah. So there's a bunch of there's been a lot of work with cryptosporidium and snakes. I found out by talking to various veterinarians and scientists and things. That's it's almost it's it's anecdotal in the world of science. Like people do studies and actually replicate and, and all that kind of stuff. But then there's there's a hand there's some nice really nice publications out there. But then there's a lot of stuff that's been done, especially in zoos, but it just hasn't gone to the write up part yet. Mm -hmm. And you know, based off some of that work, it seems like. Juvenile snakes and baby snakes obviously are far more susceptible to it than um, adults. And so in the case of my mass die-off, the snakes that got it were, um, let's see, they were either about 15 months old, so they were juveniles, uh, or six months old. So when we had our mass die-off effect, um, it was primarily those juvenile corns. But then there's also just species-level uh, reactions to it. So the particular strain of crypto that hit our collection turns out that it was extremely lethal to uh, Pichophis. Mm -hmm. um, and then to add insult to injury, I'm here at work. I don't know that much about snakes. I have animals being brought to me all the time. So I, of course, brought it from work to home. Um, and I had some Pichophis at the house, and it was, they showed symptoms and were dead two days later. Like, it was ridiculous. Oh, jeez. Um, so, there's certain species are very, very susceptible to it. Uh, whereas, like I said, water cobras have been a, 
ever-present part of my life. Anybody that knows me knows that. I had baby water cobras in the room with those baby corn snakes in tubs literally next door to the ones that got it and died. And they never popped positive on an antigen. Um, they've never shown a symptom. But there's no way they weren't exposed to the cryptosporidium because the flies were bouncing around the rack. And I don't want to give an impression like our collection's dirty or anything. It's just you have a, a handful of those forward flies. They're going to go to the feces. They're yeah. going to bounce around your closures. It's just the nature of the beast. Right. So, anyone who's had anyone who's had more than, say, five animals in their collection, they sh they know what we're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unavoidable. It's part of the game, you know? Yeah. Mm hmm. Now, let me ask this. Of those North American colubrids that contracted it or had it, were there any that were asymptomatic and survived completely and never showed a symptom? Good question. So we had some adult corn snakes, um, and we had Lampropeltis um, gage or Microfolis, depends on who you are. Um, Gyges, you know, Gyges for life. Gyges, yes. Gyges right, for go. life. Yeah. <laughs> Black milks, um, which technically are Central American, but still related to our guys up here. Uh, they triangulum, still the same. Yeah, they are. Our black milks got it um, based off the uh, antigen tests, and then we did the fecals and did the micro microscopy, and sure enough, we saw the spores. So that's the proof; it's in there. Uh, but they never really showed any kind of negative symptom. So they were our asymptomatic carriers, uh, if you will. Uh, but, and, and, and two of the gagey that got it were juveniles when they got it. So it just goes to show, uh, I think it's important that we not think like crypto equals firebomb for all snakes because right, right. we had a very diverse room and some animals were dying immediately and other animals were, were living with it and then other animals it didn't seem like they got it so now of the of the two species that we talked about the two different types of crypto is there any uh i don't want to say phenotype or is there, is there any like variation between continents or regions so like for example the north american strain is extremely lethal to north american <laughs> colubrids but it didn't do anything to the black milks or the falsies that's totally unknown and that's a wonderful question. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Would they? They really wouldn't even have a way of really pinpointing that, would they? Nope. Because you would have to have somebody who just went around the planet identifying all the different crypto strains. Mm -hmm. And then the right. question is: Is it? Is it like you said? Is it a a a strain or a haplotype of one species of of cryptos? Like, is it? Cryptosporidium serpentis in Africa is different than a little bit different than Cryptosporidium serpentis in North America, or is what we think is Cryptosporidium serpentis in Africa just a totally different species with a different mm -hmm. pathology? Right. So, I mean, the one thing that comes to my mind when just <laughs> thinking of that one question at hand is, you know, you have people around the world who keep emerald tree boas, and everyone mm -hmm. knows about the the dreaded regurgitation in emerald tree boas, where oh god, it regurgitated twice, you might as well euthanize it or whatever the the bad juju is with it. And I'm thinking like the guys who are breeding them or farming them in South America, I don't necessarily think they have that problem. And I'm wondering if there's maybe something in our North American world that the minute they open the crate and they put the snake into, you know, its enclosure, oh my God, it sees, you know, corn snake crypto and boom, it starts cursion. Yeah, that that could that could be. I mean, that that's a workable hypothesis. Right. 
Right. Yeah, I uh, was wondering the same thing. Actually, I was going to bring that up at some point. That's yeah. why. That's why we have Phil around. Phil's yeah. on point. <laughs> he's useful. So, but no. Um, but what what I've found really interesting about it is the response people have to crypto because I've mentioned to a couple people I had it and especially people in the zoo world, not all people in the zoo world, some people in the zoo world, but it's kind of a, Oh God, euthanize everything and start over. Like that's just the only way you can, you can deal with it. And me being at a, a, a university here, you know, I, I looked at this as opportunity, even though it was horrible. Um, Mor- but I morbid, if we don't, but exciting. Yeah, if we don't know, everybody's claiming we don't know anything, well, let's try to learn something right. with our collection. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if there's nothing you can really do about it, you might as well take what you can from it. Yeah. So, so the two things I wanted to figure out is, A, can you get rid of it? And with that meaning, can you get it out of an enclosure? Because the spores are so tiny... And the amount of, of spores needed to cause a, a, you know, to dose a snake, if you will, and cause an infection, that's not really well understood, but it's pretty low, um, is, is what we know. So I wanted to see if we could, like, can we eliminate it from these enclosures? Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to see is, is it possible to eliminate it from a snake? Because one of the things that was really disconcerting when i was reading all the lit when we had our outbreak was that basically you're screwed it's more of a you treat it you don't cure it and the animals are going to have it but then you have this problem of you have animals that are shedding spores and it doesn't take that many spores so that's where that ethical question comes into play do we really want this animal in our collection because it's always going to be a contamination risk um so i wanted to to kind of dive into that and so has any has anyone ever tried some of the other GI tract medicines for parasites like flagell or uh, panicure or any of that or no? Yeah. Well, well all those flagell panicure that that's all worm based if you will. Um right. that that just that just tickles crypto. <laughs> it, it doesn't wow. do a damn thing to crypto. And I've I've gone on you know many of the Facebook groups and crypto will come up and then I kind of nerd out with my nerdy obsession over this. And then I start reading all the keyboard warrior cures for it, and it makes you want to bang your head against the wall um, because none of those anti-worming drugs work. Um, uh, if, so getting into the getting it out of the snake, uh, I was sitting on my couch about three months after this happened, just Googling on my laptop like I do, and I did the search I'd done a million times. I don't understand why this popped up when it did, but up, you know, out of the ether of Google Scholar popped this article about a king cobra that was at the Bronx Zoo. And um, it came in with crypto and they wanted to, to get rid of it. So there they used a, a an antibiotic that had been suggested in the past for reptiles, but hadn't really shown the level of promise that it did with this king cobra, and it's a drug called paramomycin, just call it paro for short. Mm-hmm. And, and what they did is they basically took paramomycin, an antibiotic, and they would inject the uh, king cobra's rats with this antibiotic at a certain dosage, then feed the king cobra the rats, and then basically they would they did this consecutively, 
at a relatively high dosage to see if they could then void out the crypto. And the only way to, to truly say it's gone is to do that PCR test that I was talking about, which is basically looking for the presence of DNA. Mm -hmm. And PCR can pick up the smallest, most inconspicable piece of DNA. So if you do PCR and you get a negative, that's pretty strong evidence, at least for the sample that you, the portion of the sample you took out that, that crypto is not there because its DNA is not there. And it was really interesting because by feeding this king cobra, the rats, paramomycin, they were able to, and I'm doing air quotes in my office, <laughs> eliminate crypto or at least void crypto DNA from the gut of the snake. And then what they did to see if it actually worked is they didn't just do this once and jump up in the air and say, yay, but they, they basically did PCR analyses at various time points after they thought they were successful. And I believe they went up, I know they went for a, at one year out, but I think they actually went up to a year and a half out. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, they showed with that one snake that the paramomycin seemed to work. Now, that being said, I don't want people listening to this to be like, yay, magical cure, because paramomycin <laughs> has its problems. First, it's kind of hard to get and it's expensive. Um, second, at, at high dosages, it can cause lesions in the gut. It can cause pancreatitis. Um, so it, it's not like the best drug in the world, but it does seem to work. So or at least work for King Cobra. So I wanted to see if it would work with our snakes. So we have a wonderful vet that we work with, um, call him Dr. Dusty. So we called Dr. Dusty and said, hey, can you please get us some of this drug and show us how to use it? And so he, he did. And then we started to treat our black milk snakes uh, that were still alive. We treated some of our corn snakes that were still alive. And then we had um, Baron's racers that Never showed any sign of cryptosporidium, but they were they were asymptomatic carriers. The antigen test kept popping on them. So I really wanted to get the crypto out of them because, you know, all things aside, I just absolutely love our Baron eye. Yeah. I didn't want them to die. So of course, of course. Yeah. So we started to treat with the um Paro, and the way we did it initially is we injected the mice and would feed them that way. But then we learned a little bit about how the drug works, and the way the drug works is kind of interesting. So when the crypto gets into the gut of a snake, what happens is there's this little thing called a noocyst that, that that's what's actually ingested, usually yeah. through the snake drinking water that has the spores in or something like that. That goes down to the stomach, and then there's um, it opens up, and then these little um, zoids is what they're called go into the gut of the the gut wall, the stomach wall of the snake. And then they live right in that epithelial tissue, right on the surface of the stomach. So the way the para works is that when it goes into the stomach, it's absorbed into that stomach lining. And what's interesting is, and this is where you get it gets kind of weird and wonky and almost science fiction-y, is that the paramomycin doesn't necessarily kill the cryptosporidium per se, it deactivates it. So basically, it like it flips a biological switch to off, which makes you think it's dead. But oh. in protist land, that's not necessarily the case. But it's essentially functionally inert and dead. And it's not going to be dividing and spreading at that point. So that's the goal. So if you can get to that point, you'll still have the crypto in the gut wall, 
but you don't have the crypto being put out into the gut itself. So when the snakes go to the bathroom, they're not going to be shedding as much protein. So you can use your antigen test and your PCR to see if it's gone. That's what the um, uh, King Cobra peeps did at the Bronx Zoo. So we did that. And after a couple months of treatment, sure enough, our bear and I ended up being um, negative with antigen tests. And our black milks ended up being negative with antigen tests. And our, our corn snakes, unfortunately, they they passed away just too much. Uh, due to crypto. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is, this is the part where I don't want this necessarily to be thought of as a cure-all. Because remember how I said it deactivates it? Mm-hmm. It deactivates it in the presence of the parabomycin. So if you stop oh. with the paro... Yeah then those cells, in theory, can, I'm doing air quotes again, reactivate, and then under, start undergoing division. And so that's why you need the, the, the scientists went to the 12-year point and beyond to see how long it's going to deactivate it after hitting it with a heavy dose. Um, and so that's, that's, what, that's what makes crypto snakes so much fun, <laughs> and I mean that facetiously, because they, you know, you think it's gone, but you don't know if it's gone. Uh, and, and so um, it's it's troublesome. We'll just leave it at that. So what is it? That, I mean, what are they? What, what's the actual cause of death? Is it like sepsis or something? Because if the snake's regurgitating, oh. like what's the, what's the, the, the cause result? of death is uh, the, the the snakes just can't eat. Uh, they can't hold down food. So when the crypto parasite goes into the stomach, what it causes is hypertrophy of the stomach wall. So those little organisms burrow into the, the cells of the stomach, and then the snake's body doesn't, you know, we don't want things burrowing into the wall of our stomach. That's right. bad. So there's an autoimmune response, and what ends up happening is the mucosa of the stomach, which is that tissue, starts to um, increase in size because it's an inflammatory response. And if you think about it, a stomach is a is a hollow uh, tube. If you start filling up the inside of that hollow tube, you're going to decrease the amount of area inside the stomach. So when the snake ends up eating a prey item, it can't fit in there with the same way it would normally, and everything's tight. They can't really digest. You start to get uh, decomposition because digestion's not happening, and then the next thing you know, it leads to regurgitation. Uh, and so one way that you can combat that is to simply feed the animals smaller prey items, but, but then they're still not going to get the same amount of nutrition that they would normally. And, and so it's really sad to watch because the snakes just kind of slowly wither away, um, to nothing. And then the whole time they're shedding cryptospores. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it's potentially spreading the infection or, or sorry, spreading the parasite further. That's crazy. It's actually interesting you brought up that Bronx King Cobra because I had heard about that scenario. I didn't know nearly the in-depth that you just described, but, you know, our resident King Cobra junkie, uh, Henry the Hen Dog, he actually, <laughs> I, I told him that we were doing this show tonight, and he said, hey, man, don't forget to ask him about Frozen because, you know, Henry exclusively feeds snakes to his ophiophagus specimens. Yes. So one of the things he does is he obviously maintains 
you know, proper hygiene stuff with the dead animals. But his whole thing is freezing it for 90 days. And obviously, if the snake died of a particular illness, he's not going to feed it to his other snakes. But his whole thing was, how long does the stuff stay alive frozen? Yeah. If if you get it, I don't remember this, like the specifics off the top of my head. Um, and, and there is, before I go any further, because I want to say this, if you're listening to this and you want an, an incredibly amazing resource for snake people in crypto, there was a review paper written by um, Dr. Bogan, who's the vet at the Central Florida Zoo on cryptosporidiosis and snakes. And it was published in 2019. And it's it it does a, a million times better job than what I'm doing right now on this podcast. So anybody that like wants it. that, just we email like, me. But we like your version because <laughs> you can actually explain it to us. Correctly. Yeah. But it, it, it's that deactivation piece again. But um, if you freeze the snakes, if he freezes them below five degrees Fahrenheit, so really freezes them, I think the magic number is um, 30. But to be safe, we're going to say 60 days. You get that deactivation effect. Uh, and and it, it should render it inert. But at the same time, after doing the deep dives I've done with all the literature, I'm going to flat out tell you, I don't, I don't believe anything until it's been done scientifically in replication. Yeah. And this thing's a survivor on all fronts. Yeah, right. Because I mean, blows... you've got, go ahead. You got species. I was going to say you got species of, you know, in the Boothidae family of scorpions, where you know they take certain species from the Saharan desert, they deep freeze them, you know, below zero <laughs> for you know, 12 months, and then they slowly bring them back up to temperature and the thing comes back to life. And that's yeah. a, a legitimate arthropod. We're talking about, you know, single cell organism shit. Yeah. yeah, that's what that's what blows my mind about some of those microorganisms, their ability to pretty much, like, they're invincible. Like, they can't be killed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, we've had, we've had success with paramomycin um, today, but uh, we, we, we're now with the situation of we don't know what to do with these animals that we know had crypto and now they're crypto negative. That's what we refer to them as. We don't say they're cured. We just simply say they're crypto negative. Uh, and, and we don't know whether to move them back into the main collection or if they just live in perpetuity in the mm -hmm. room that they're in. Um, so, yeah. So but, I, ivermectin doesn't have any effect on them either? Nope. Wow. Nothing. And, and then when it comes to sterilizing enclosures and equipment and stuff like that, that's another thing that's great. Um, it'll make you, you you bang your head against the wall if you go on the social media and, and places like that for your information. <laughs> the, the number one, the only thing that works really, really well quickly. So there are some methods of sterilization that you can use, but you have to expose the organism for a long period of time to get a 95% kill of them. But if you get hydrogen peroxide in a concentration of 6% or higher, and it has to be 6% or higher, uh, the stuff that you go to CVS and Rite Aid, that's not that 6%. That doesn't even come close. Yeah. No. So this is food grade hydrogen peroxide. You can get it on Amazon and, and places like that. You know immediately when you're at 6% because it will burn you. <laughs> so this is not stuff you put on your hands or cut. Um, but that is able to deactivate the crypto. And uh, it when you put it in an enclosure, the thing that's nice is like, just like when you put it in a, a you know, 
pus-filled cut or something like that, it'll start to bubble and sizzle, and that's a reaction it's having with uh, bacteria and things, things not necessarily the crypto organism, but bacteria that's in the enclosure. But um, yeah, you can see it acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you've got to just code everything in that a couple times. Um, if you can take the incl- that's that should be your step one. Um, if you use chlorhexidine or Clorox or Lysol um, or basic ammonia, and that 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 just tickles it. It doesn't do anything to crypto. Um, and I've I actually have gotten into battles with people online trying to tell me like, oh, bleach kills it. It doesn't. It doesn't deactivate it at all. So if you get if you find out you have crypto and you're using bleach and you feel good about yourself at the end of the day, you've just spread the crypto all over your enclosure with the liquidified bleach. You've got to use the peroxide. But what's really interesting, though, is there's something we all have access to that has actually been shown with cryptosporidium and reptiles, like the species that are in reptiles. It, it deactivates them, which is just simply sunlight. If uh, UV is a really good way to deactivate the spores. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a bright, sunshiny day and your UV index is high, um, take your enclosure outside. But the, the issue, though, is these spores are ridiculously small. So if, if you picture how you put a PVC enclosure together and you've got that little microscopic you know, edge or groove where the yeah. two pieces come together, you know, if you don't get the sunlight down into that groove, the crypto that's down in there isn't going to be killed. So don't necessarily feel like you've, it, you've killed it by simply putting your enclosure outside. But if you kind of rotate it around, that's good. And then if you live where I live... I mean, I don't really live in the great white north, but it gets pretty cold up here um, in the winter. Uh, The year that we had the crypto hit, it was just very convenient that that was one of our polar vortex years where it was like below zero for a week. And so uh, I took all the enclosures outside, basically, and they were out in that freezing cold for a week with bright sunshine. And then we hit them with hydrogen peroxide. And then steam cleaning does a bit as well. Um, the, the other option is ammonia and, and just straight ammonia. Uh, but cr- to get 95% of the spores to die, the spores have to be exposed to the ammonia for in, like it's in excess of 10 hours. I don't remember the exact time, but it's a very long period of time. So if you put the ammonia in there, you burn your nose, you know, you got to burn, you got to be around it for. 10, you know, 10 plus hours for it to actually kill the crypto. So it's just worth it to get a steam cleaner and your high-end hydrogen peroxide, uh, and, and then you're going to actually do some damage. Hmm. Stuff's no joke, man. It's yeah. crazy. So what is it it's about ho- peroxide, though, that is so much more effective than the other stuff? Has a totally different mode of action biochemically. Now, I failed chemistry three times, so I can't tell you what that is. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you that that you know that biochemistry and, and the reaction that the chemical has to the oocyst's uh, uh, spore coat is is what actually does the damage. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, is there so. any is I have also heard that it is transmittable to mammals and birds and whatever else. Is that 
not true of the two that affect, you know, squamates at all? Or is that just a coincidence or what? So great question, Phil. Uh, so my current grad student who's working on Cryptosporidium, uh, her name's Sydney Ozersky. And then we've also had another shout out. There's somebody in the herping community that's helped us out, Jen Archer. She has a PhD in molecular biology and is doing a lot of work on crypto, um, you know, with, from her home. Uh, but we've looked at uh, the organism. And, and one of the things I want to know is like, well, what all cryptos inside a snake? It turns out that Cryptosporidium parvum, which is the crypto that we get, because humans can absolutely get crypto. Uh, it was actually when the AIDS virus hit in the 80s, um, that lowers your immune system. And, and Cryptosporidium parvum infections were one of the most lethal aspects to um, AIDS patients, because if they got it when their immune system was down, it, it was it was highly lethal. So, But that was wow. parvum that did that. And what we have found is that snakes, we know snakes can do it, we think lizards can do it, is that you can get, they can get a cryptosporidium that's not serpentis or varinae, and it can be in their gut, and they can pass it. And so uh, one of the projects that my grad student Sydney's working on is we had this issue because we then went when we now do fairly frequent testing with those antigen tests of our collection and they're by no means perfect but they're quick and easy and we kept getting positives but they were weird positives because the, the way the antigen test works is you put the feces on the test you add a whole bunch of chemicals over a time series and then if they're crypto positive, this blue line shows up on the little crypto test. And we were getting these snakes that had the a very, very faint blue line. So there was a blue line. But the animals that seemed to actually have like a raging crypto infection or that we did slides on and we were able to see crypto, they had a blue line, like a very marked line. So we were trying to figure out like what the hell's going on here? Do they have a little bit? Like that makes no sense. Um, and so Sid being a good scientist, uh, had an antigen test, and she just decided to take some rodent poop, mouse poop, from a frozen rodent, and put it onto the antigen test to see if they had crypto. Because the way the antigen tests work is if it's just for the presence of crypto protein. doesn't necessarily mean you have an infection, but if you have the crypto in your gut and you pass it, you're going to get it. And once you know it, um, the mouse poo tested positive for crypto. And it was like an immediate blue line. So then Sydney, being a good scientist, wow. went and got some more mouse poop out of another bag of frozen rodents. Uh, and sure enough, that mouse had crypto. So that led us to think, hold on a second. <laughs> so if we're relying on these antigen tests to tell us if the animals have crypto, and we now know that their food could have crypto that could pass through their gut... That could then give us what essentially equates to a false positive for the snake, even though it is a positive because there was crypto protein in their gut. Right. So Sydney's done this thesis, and we'll wait for her publication to come out. But long, long story short, we have absolutely shown that you can feed a snake cryptosporidium parvum, which is non-infectious to a snake, and then have that go through their gut, and then you can get a crypto-positive test on the other side. Uh so it doesn't just have to be Serpentis or Verinae. 
And that's why doing the PCR testing is so important over those antigen tests. Okay. Because yeah, the PCR test is going to tell you what it is. Right. Um, the antigen test just simply tells you some kind of cryptosporidium was in the gut of the snake at some time and passed in this feces. Hmm. So, so, yeah. Crazy. If someone yeah. finds out they have it, what what is your recommendation that they do? Now, remember, I am not a veterinarian, so consult your veterinarian. But what we do now is we immediately isolate... Um, and then we make a decision at that point in time. If the animal is showing it, if you get to the point of frequent regurgitation, liquefied stool, you know, euthanasia almost certainly is probably the best bet because at that point you get into welfare issues for the animal and it's almost certainly not living its best life. The, The questionable piece is when you get these asymptomatic carriers where they have crypto they're producing solid stools. There's no regurgitation. And those, to me, are actually the most interesting aspect of cryptosporidium in an animal collection because they're basically masquerading as normal. And they're, the question then is, are they really a ticking time bomb uh, of spread or are they not? Like, what role do they play in the pathology of the disease in a, in a snake collection? Um, and so what we've done is we've started to do the treatments. Now, granted, don't do that on your own. Work with a vet. <laughs> uh, but the paramomycin does seem to work, um, at least with the animals we've collected. We, we Not we've collected, field biologists. Um, we have. But we've also only only done this with four species of snakes, and there's like over 2,000 species of snake. Right. So, right, right, right. You know, nothing I'm saying should be treated as gospel. It's just, that's it. So, uh but, but that, that's my recommendation. Um, zoos oftentimes will actually have a crypto. It's almost like they have a crypto ward when it pops up. Uh, because, they, you know, you don't, if you're trying to do a species survival plan on a rare animal and you get crypto in there, it's bad. Yeah, it's but, not good. But they certainly don't want to kill off the only remaining animals in human care. And these guys can totally breed and, and have crypto in their bodies. Those animals that are asymptomatic, what's interesting about them is if they get sick or they get overly stressed, that's what then causes them to go from asymptomatic to symptomatic because their immune systems play in this game basically with the crypto organisms in their gut. And the second that the crypto gets the advantage over the immune system, it pops. Um, But yeah, so it's, it's, it's an interesting... Yeah, that's always, that's always been what I've been most curious about between this and like Nido is like what is it that that breaks the like the straw that can't, breaks the camel's back? Yeah, you know, like what is it that then causes them to take that turn? But but I absolutely promise there are there's probably not one or two. There's probably quite a few of the listeners have crypto in their collections. They just don't know it because they've got good husbandry and their animals are doing well. And they're not stressed. But if you start to get regurges, um, frequent regurges, and, and distension in the stomach, especially in a snake, you should definitely isolate that animal mm-hmm. sooner than later. Yeah. But speaking of best life, 
Yeah. You, just, you just released a paper that you sent to me. Yes, it did. I read, and it's very interesting. And it talks about um, sort of the the folklore husbandry, as you so eloquently put it. So what was the what was the reason you decided to, to do that and put out that paper? The uh, there are Facebook. multiple reasons. Um, the, the main reason why is I'm in charge, or I'm the coordinator for the Zeusai major here. Uh, and in academia, you know, whether we like it or not, the way you get street cred is you publish papers. So uh, we had a Zeusai major, and I'm, I'm really big on publishing. I think that's important. I don't, uh, uh, that's also how you better the field you're in. Yeah. Um, and so here I am doing all this herpetoculture stuff, uh, for lack of a better word. I, I published a ton on crayfish. I love the herp, herpetoculture um, aspect of my professional life as well. It's a year of COVID. I can't go do field work over the summer. And so I thought this is going to be my year to dedicate to the herpetoculture side since I can't go anywhere. And I wanted to do it anyway. And I had a great big assignment in my herpetology class, herpetology and herpetoculture class. And I was you know, driving from home to work. And I was trying to like put together what that assignment would look like. And when you when you do that, you, you have to write up a big document for the students to follow. And I just kind of realized I could write a publication instead and kill two birds with one stone. Um, and so I wanted to write the pub. And so I did. Uh, and it was <laughs> it was quite the learning experience. Um, we'll leave it at, at, at that, because when when you publish a paper in a journal, it's, it's different than publishing it in, in like uh, your absolutely wonderful magazine. Shameful plug for it um, <laughs> in that, you know, when I write wrote that, I sent it off into the ether to go through this wonderful process called peer review where you basically give it to people who know a hell of a lot more than you and then tell them to rip it to shreds. Uh, and, and so the final version of that is about the eighth version of that paper is what actually got published. So it's, it's that painful constructive criticism that you, you love to get, but you hate <laughs> actually looking at it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, blood, blood was shed in the peer review process of that paper. Um, Just smile but, and nod. <laughs> yep. Smile, nod, and take it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but no, I mean, I, I, I've got plenty of graduate students here, and we're, we, we are, I now have enough graduate students that we have what I'm referring to as the evidence-based herpetoculture lab. And my nice. big deal with herpetoculture is I just think that our husbandry practices should not be based off of years of this is the way we've always done it. I, I feel like we should be pushing the envelope yes. and trying to do the best we possibly can for the animals that we all love. Um, and there's, we all know the million different arguments that pop up. Um, the, the, the most notable of course is rack versus enclosure, bioactive versus minimalistic. Uh, and I just look at those arguments and I see validity to both sides, if you look at them objectively, uh, and I, I just wanted there to be a, a mechanism for us to kind of drive our husbandry practices where we're able 
to challenge the way we've done things and then just use science and most importantly for herps, natural history and what's already been done in the field to, to drive the way we take care of our animals. So brilliant. That's it. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've, we've talked about this before where, you know, we notice a driving evolutionary force in captive husbandry. And sometimes we have to revert back to old techniques because it works better than what we had attempted or whatever. But I think that the up and coming keepers of the new generation, they have it great, man, because they don't have, oh, yeah, they, didn't have they didn't have to go through the hardships that some of us had to go through. And at the same time, they have so many different avenues that they can walk down and see what works best for their species and their particular keeping methods and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yep. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's, so it's like kind of almost, I won't say necessarily equal parts. Like if it ain't broke, there's no need to fix it and like pushing the envelope. But I mean, I've talked about it before, like experimenting with things, like trying different things, like as long as it's not to the detriment of the animal, you know, sort of seeing what works and what doesn't. Cause there is some things that it's, it's like that where we've been doing it the same way for 30 years and no one's really questioned it because it works. Like why look into it anymore? We've already figured it out, you know? Um, yeah. But like, I think about incubation in particular, like, yeah, we do the same thing, the, the vermiculite and stuff, but then, you know, I've been adding like springtails and, some stuff into my egg boxes during incubation just to see if it makes a difference. I don't know if I, if it will. I think over time I might see a difference with different species and stuff, but it's just small stuff like that, you know? Oh yeah. And then yeah. with my paper, the, the cool thing about my perspective, I feel is that I, I can almost have internal arguments with my damn self because <laughs> I'm a conservation biologist. So I kind of see the, that perspective of captive husbandry to, to promote species and, and, and you know, we, we got to learn how to do this, especially for the imperiled species. I'm in charge of a zoo major in a zoo grad program. So obviously the, the strong husbandry to, to drive the conservation is, is part of my life. Um, but I'm also a, got trained as an ecologist, so I have to know how to like review the literature and use scientific method and all that kind of stuff to do science. But then I can like wipe all that out, and when you boil it down to it, I'm a freaking hobbyist. So like, I leave my office full of water cobras, I go home, and then there's another room full of water cobras. So, <laughs> not a bad you know problem to have. <laughs> it's not a bad you know, situation, but I, this is what I do to geek out and, and, and have you know, fun. And so I was kind of looking at herpetoculture through all those different lenses. And then I had this class project. And what I realized was, after listening to so many podcasts and digesting content, is that there were all these little nuggets floating out in the ether. And and nobody, it seemed, had actually taken all the different nuggets and tried to, like, put it within a framework that a beginning person could latch on to and maybe use as a model for how they take care of animals. Yeah. So a lot of what's in that the the paper isn't novel, and I flat out say that. I mean, before anybody flames me, if if you read it and they're like, "We've been doing this for years," I know we've been doing this for years. There's a paragraph in there where I say this is the way we've been doing this. But what I feel like the private sector um, doesn't always appreciate or realize is available to them now is that there's this massive amount of scientific literature that exists that uh 
if you know some certain key phrases in journal article titles, you can kind of latch on to a journal article. And even though the, the herpetologist who did that journal is not necessarily writing this for a herpetoculture person, there's all kinds of wonderful little tidbits in there that we yeah. can take out and, and really answer all these kind of questions we have regarding herpetoculture. Absolutely. Um, well, I think so, the, I think the Green Tree community is a good example of that because I mean the you know the Natouche paper that got shared around to everybody yep. that was breaking down all the different subspecies and like where they were finding them and what their ranges were looking like and you know overlap in those ranges and then you had the you know the Julander Philip book on green trees that was mostly natural history and stuff like that and then you know guys like Rico were doing that where they would be paying attention to temperatures and seasonality you know in Papua and and that kind of thing. And so I do think we are kind of getting better about overall the hobby's getting better about kind of looking at, you know, what are ball pythons actually doing in the wild? Like what information do we have yes. about that? Instead yeah. of, well, this is how, you know, Bob Clark did it in 95. So that's just how I'm going to do it. But what, what's cool is if we take that natural history information and then we apply it to our husbandry, you can very quickly figure out where we're going wrong. So, yeah. you know, uh, and, and that was one of the main things that I, I really felt a need to kind of get out into the ether so that people could, could latch onto it and, and start thinking because, I, mean, I you know, once again, not a novel idea, heard it on plenty of podcasts, but you can read in your books and things about the ambient temperature in, you know, uh, where, where Brett and I live mm -hmm. in Alice Springs, Australia, and it gets insanely hot there in the summer. We all know that. But nobody's voluntarily keeping their bredolite at 115 degrees because there's microclimates there and microhabitats right. there. And the animals, when it's hot, they're down in a hollow log or they're in a rock crevice. So in the manuscript, you know, I, I kind of explain that. Did and, talk and about that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, but it's just learning where to go to find this stuff. And there's a website that I found, and it's in the manuscript as well. It's called WeatherSpark. Uh, WeatherSpark's freaking amazing um, if you're a herpetoculture person because the way that they present the annual temperature data for anywhere on the planet is they create these beautiful, very easy-to-digest graphs um, with the average high, average low. But then they go into depth with things like UV um, radiation. They, they uh, go into relative humidity. They go into light levels, so you know you can take that that information on light level and figure out, well, do I need to have like a 12-12 light cycle or a 12-13 oh, yeah. light cycle? Or you can you can basically, you know, if you just look through it, to look at that information through the lens of a herpetoculture, herpetoculturist, you can see where it's very, very useful. But one thing, I, I sent the manuscript to Travis Wyman and basically said, so what do you think? Um, and Travis brought up, up a very valid point, which is one thing I don't, I do not promote in the paper is necessarily like reading the paper and making it a war cry to challenge everything that we've done, even the things we've figured out. Yeah. Um, you know, so like he brought up the, the very valid point of right now there's a couple groups for ball pythons and it's kind of going around that they're up in trees. Well, yeah, yeah of course <laughs> they'll go up into a tree but they're going to 
they might go up in the tree, find a tree hollow, and hang out for the day or two. That's one of those microhabitats we're talking about. They're not, but they're not going to like coil up on a branch like a chondro. Right. Uh, and, and right now, there's certain members of that community that are kind of up in arms, saying they're semi-arboreal. And and I would just argue, I don't know if that's proof they're semi-arboreal. I think that's proof that they're more of an ecological generalist. Right. Um, Oh, and I if mean, you, survival and the, yeah. the, the drive to eat will make things do crazy things. Right. I mean, I've, I've walked into a room and, you know, something just seems off when I walk in the room and I look up and there's a ball python wrapped around an incandescent light bulb fixture on the ceiling. Yeah. And <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, how the hell did it get up there? And I noticed it went up the rack and went up to the side and it stretched out just enough to reach that light bulb and latched on and wrapped around it because it was warm and it was out of yeah. its enclosure. So, like, is it arboreal? Probably not. But is it opportunistic in terms of keeping itself alive? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Weird. <laughs> yep. I mean, then, P and Cody had a freaking one of their gaboons that's housed with their, uh, I think it's their Western Greens. Uh, they posted a picture of it a couple months ago of it literally going up into the elevated hide, like five feet up. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a big so, gaboon, but it was a gaboon. You know, does that make them semi-arboreal? Hell no. They just, sometimes yep. they do weird shit. Oh. Yeah, so... I had fun writing it. The other th- reason why I wrote the paper is um, there's a term. It, it's it's ever present in the academic side of herpetoculture. I don't really hear it used that often, but I love it. Um, there's a the curator at the New Orleans, the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans, Robert Mendick, wrote an awesome paper about this. But it's 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 the term folklore husbandry, mm-hmm. um, and that's that whole idea of well, we've always done it this way, therefore it works. Uh, and there's definitely some evidence to that, but like folklore husbandry is, is you could argue was like one of the major driving forces behind why snake people are still to this day resistant to use UVB. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that certain snakes will use UVB. Um, I saw it with my water cobras when I provided a gravid female with a UVB bulb it was really interesting. Every morning the UVB lights came on and she would go and actually bask underneath that one first. And I got three lamp slots in the top of her big six foot long enclosure. So I would, I moved the UVB uh, kind of like coconuts, if you will. And the heat lamp just to see, is she like going to that end of the enclosure for the hell of it? Or is, is she actually seeking the UVB? Right. Everywhere I put the UVB bulb, that's where she went. You think that um, helped with like calcium in the eggshells and everything like that? Like development? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's probably something going on there. Uh, but yet we've got this kind of this body of lit that's showing that bone density increases with UVB radiation, which is calcium deposition in a snake. Mm-hmm. Um, that you see different biochemical constituents in the blood kind of going up after chronic exposure to UVB. But there was one paper that was published on ball pythons and the conclusions of that one paper out of this you know, body of literature were we really didn't see a noticeable difference. And I just find it interesting that that's the paper everybody latched onto yeah. in snake land. And so we've got all these other manuscripts over here that are showing probably benefits them and nobody seems to cite 
those. So it's, that's it's the subconscious. It's the subconscious laziness. <laughs> yes. You know, you, you unknowingly read the one thing that says you can cheat and not mm-hmm. have to do extra work. So naturally, that's what your mind latches onto. Yeah. Well, I think people also forget that it's like science is fluid. Like you can have a paper come out that says one thing and then 10 years later, another paper comes out saying, well, that was actually wrong. We've done it. This is what we actually know. We did a little more work. Absolutely. Like people think because it's a scientific paper, it's like that's that's a hard and fast thing now. Like someone put in the time. But I mean, papers can be wrong. Experiments and, and things can be like sample sizes can be small and not really validate or back up a, you know, a, a hypothesis. But people just if it's if it's signed by academics and it has all the, you know, the references and stuff like that, people are like, yep, this is it. This is it. Yeah. And, and then you get all. one guy. Yeah, you get one guy who said, man, I kept UVB on my blah, blah, blah for six months, and I didn't notice a difference, so I unplugged it. Yeah. Okay, well, that's yeah. wonderful. You know, it's it's a proven fact that ball pythons live in a hole in the ground in the grasslands of Benin. But at the same time, <laughs> no one is sitting in front of that hole for the, you know, the 14 hours of sunlight each day to see if the sucker comes out to bask for 20 minutes and then goes back in his hole. Exactly. And, yep. and so... That's where reading the natural history papers, maybe there was some mm-hmm. guy that did that. And so it might be published somewhere. So that's where using the natural history information to drive your husbandry uh, and then having that framework, that's why I wrote the paper. So I like to... but on the UVB front, uh, you know, and I go into this in the discussion of the manuscript, I flat out say the UVB requirements of a false water cobra, which is going to, which they live in a relatively open environment with a high amount of sun is almost certainly going to be different should they require uvb which i do think they do than a um green tree hanging out in the you know sub canopy of a rainforest in papua new guinea right um so we can't these these kind of blanket statements are what get us into trouble so when you say oh snakes don't need uvb you're saying 2500 species are all identical, and the evolution for all those species was exactly the same mm-hmm. for this, which that's yeah. not the way that works. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, so, anyway, going back to like the folklore husbandry thing, I mean, once again, I feel like all I do is reference back to chondros, but those are a really good example of it. You know, people thinking that they need to be kept, you know, the in the high 80s for, you know, a hot spot, mm-hmm. and, you know, you need to keep them at like 80% humidity constantly. Like the, the Julander Phillip book. It is still a game changer to me because they came back and said that's actually completely wrong. This is how we are keeping them. They're doing fine. We're having issues with them because we're keeping them this way. That you know, Trooper Walsh was keeping them in the you know mid seventies, and it's just that's not the way that it should be done anymore. Exactly. So, no, it was a great paper um, to write. I had fun doing it. Like I said, I, I don't want anybody thinking that, you know, I'm sitting here in my ivory tower because I totally got my ass kicked during the peer review <laughs> process. But uh, that's the fun part of science is like you learn that that that's part of it is if you're, you're going to produce the best product if that part happens. Um, so, yeah. And in that review, I learned a ton. Uh, that was the best part. And what I mean, what is that? Is them that them reading it and saying this doesn't you know this section doesn't have enough information to back it up you need to do more that's exactly it so okay. basically when you when you undergo the when, when you try to get something published in a scientific journal 
and not all journals are created equal. Mm -hmm. You write your manuscript, then you submit it to the journal, and um, they're going to submit your article to, if it's truly peer-reviewed, hopefully experts in the field. So, you know, being a crayfish biologist, there are essentially, I always use this number, because and I actually counted once and feel it's true, there are nine humans on planet Earth that do what I do with the crayfish. And we're all writing papers. So it's no, like, we know who's reviewing our papers, okay? Right. Um, and we're a, we're a community, just like there's chondro people, gecko people, there's totally crayfish people. Uh, and we're an amicable community. So, yeah. They're just that, many that's lobsters. One type. Uh, no, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, uh, but when I did this, I'm not part of this academic community yet. So nobody knows who I am from Adam, and that shouldn't impact the review process at all. But I had two reviewers that were fantastic, and they they raked, they, you know, they they kicked the paper around a little bit, but the end process was great. And then I had another reviewer, and I'm just going to say in, in academia, we always, there's like memes about reviewer number three. Uh, and I literally lived all of those memes with reviewer number three. So it was, it was Rand Hoser, right? Well, <laughs> there you go. And as you're, so what happens is basically they turn track the comment option on in word. And then every little oh, comment God. where they have something wrong, they'll challenge you. And it's not like you ignore it. You then have to write what's called a rebuttal. And then every challenge, you make a separate word document um, and then you copy their question, dump it in the Word document, and then you write your response and then show how you change the manuscript. And for the listeners out there who like wonder about this, when I submitted the manuscript, it was 20, 22 pages long, including the bibliography and the figures. The rebuttal paper, by the time it was published, was over 60 pages single-spaced. It was three times the length of the actual Manuscript because there was some stuff in there that that they they just didn't like, uh, and you know you can either relent and let it go, or if you're the author and you feel like it's important, you can kind of fight the fight to keep it in there. But you got to be real careful because the reviewers own own this process. So I was totally you know when I wrote this, I was writing it for future grad students, people who were getting introductory jobs in zoos that are then given the task of developing a protocol for husbandry and they don't know how to start. Um, and then I was also hoping that people in the private sector who were looking for something like this could actually have it. And the, the issue was I was trying to cater to so many audiences, normally you're only catering to one. Yeah. So a lot of the private sector, of course, was the part that they all wanted removed. And I, I fought hard to keep a bunch of it in there and people are actually like, going to use this you know like outside yeah of, yeah and i also put it in the journal where anybody can get it so it's open access anybody has access to this man you don't have to have access to the journal to get the article you can if you do an, an internet search uh, for loafman gigas which is the latin name for species name for the hognose snake not hognose snake jesus um <laughs> false, false water, water covers <laughs> it pops up I was going to share it. I just so, wasn't sure if it was like public yet or not. Yeah. So. Oh, no, you can share uh, it. I was going to. No, do it. Cool. And one of the things I talk about in there is there's totally, totally opportunities for herpetoculture to contribute to the science of herpetology. Um, that's one of the arguments that I, I really don't like the us versus them 
on both sides yeah. idea. It's, but where, it's, it's hardcore. Yeah. It, 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 at it the is. same time, and I feel <laughs> like we've done a pretty good job of like both helping each other. Yeah. Yeah, but I, but I also feel like not just to play devil's advocate. I feel like the people in our community that we associate because let's I'm not, I want to single out Justin or speak for him, but I, I'm a hobbyist. You know, I'm not a scientist. I don't have any kind of real degree in this. But the the people that I've talked to on that scientific level, they almost poo poo me. And like I yeah. I know for a fact that I could not write a scientific paper at this moment in my life because I do not have the for lack of a better synonym, the jargon or the, yep. the, the, the composition to write a quote-unquote, and again, those air quotes, scientific paper. So, like, it makes me wonder, like, all those guys that are, you know, snooty with their nose in the air, oh, what is this? This is layman talk. Did that play a factor in you writing it? Totally did. Yeah. 100%. And, yeah, and, like, that, <laughs> the, the, that, and that third guy – with that third guy, did you go to him specifically because he was him, or you had certain people you had to take it to? Oh, oh I didn't go to that guy voluntarily at all. That was <laughs> the journal said, Here, reviewer number three, review this. And it was a bit of a battle. I don't want to talk, you know, throw shade in any direction, but it was a battle. Um, right. But I think that that's the number one issue. And there's definitely, there, there's, I see both sides of this on the, you know, herpetologist side, why on God's green earth would you not at least entertain the idea of talking to people who absolutely love and adore these animals more than anyone? I mean, think about all the people that go herping. The people that are out herping, if you just simply train them a little bit in really simplistic data that they can take, there's all kinds of discoveries that herpers can make. Yeah, you get enough and, of it, it adds up and can reveal yeah, something. Yeah, and it totally does. So right. websites like iNaturalist are a great example of that. Uh, people like me will get onto iNaturalist and look for our animal groups and, and get legitimate scientific records. There's been new species that have been discovered by people just walking out in their backyard with their cell phone and taking a picture of a bug. Like, that, that happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so we shouldn't be poo-pooing them. And then on the flip side to that, though, as an you know a herpetologist, when, when we... <laughs> have data that kind of shows things like tegus are bad when they are introduced to Florida, the hobby shouldn't turn around and be like, well, no, they're not. And I'm not necessarily saying the hobby does that, but there's definitely some people that do. Yeah. Uh, but then, then the flip side to that is I don't necessarily think that biologists should then turn around and say, we must ban all tegus. Uh, like, that's not right either. So it's just the extreme sides to these. If people just met in the middle and talked, yeah, well, well, the problem it would be is, great. Is that the problem is when you have a group of scientists who are studying invasive lizards in a particular peninsular area of this country, mm -hmm. they are working for the U.S. Geological Service and can't tell a tegu from an alligator. Yeah. That's a problem They're in my everywhere. book. That's, that's, yeah. that's a topic for a whole other discussion. Oh, no, that, that, totally, that totally is. Um, yeah, I actually, and I have a good friend. Her name is Rachel. She's a professor in Phoenix, and she did a whole major. It's funny you brought up tegus. Whole major tegu study, and yes, they are invasive, and yes, they are a problem. But thank God that she was there doing research the time she was, so that she could actually educate some people and show them the, the true facts. Because she is a hobbyist, and she is, a, you know, a academia. So. It kind of she kind of blended the two together, which was great, and that's kind of what you're attempting to do, or you have done, you know? Yeah. No. So it's just 
communication. That's all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I tell people all the time, there, there's no reason to poo-poo it. Uh, there's all kinds of future conservationists listening to this right now that have snakes in the room. Um, and obviously there's that appreciation there. So it just gets really nasty when we start going at each other. So part of the reason why I wrote the paper is, and it, it's my relatively small attempt to just show there's worth in all these different groups. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. But one, one example that I talk about is like, if, if we bring in some animal and, and people are, are keeping it in, in human care uh, and it produces eggs, if it's something that no herpetologist has had time to study in the field. Rough scale. Sure. There's an argument that, well, it produced the eggs in an artificial scenario, and that may not be reflective of what they would do in nature, but you can't deny the fact that at least we now know that this animal can have 12 babies. Like, yeah, there is something to be learned. Yeah. Yeah. Better yet. Yeah. Better yet. There's particular species of snake that, you know, field collectors caught it. They took it into their care. They set it up in the way that they thought it would be most realistic to its natural environment. And the thing laid eggs and no one had ever seen eggs before. They yeah. didn't know if it was live birth or not. Yeah. So yeah. That, that, and then the thing is though, when that happens, the follow-up piece is that then needs to be written up. And um, that's where people get scared. Like you were talking about Phil and I, I feel like there's people like Rachel. I actually think I'm Facebook friends with Rachel, so I think I know who you're talking about. Uh, excellent, the excellent. Other, other, you know, people that are kind of across all disciplines that should then help the herpetoculture side publish that, not right. put their nose up when someone comes to you and says, "Hey, I think I made a little discovery here." And is it like the groundbreaking herpetological discovery of whatever year? No. Is it going to help that animal and our understanding of its natural history? Absolutely. So why not publish it in, there's money journals, there's herpetology notes, there's herp review. You know, those are two that are relatively straightforward. So, yeah. But this is something I'm really passionate about. And I I just, I feel like a lot of the, the fighting and pointing and all that kind of stuff not, it's never going to go away. I'm not saying that, but yeah, there's always going to be some guy who sits <laughs> up on his on his high horse and says, "You don't have a degree, or you didn't mm-hmm. study under this person, or you don't know how to write a paper properly." Well, instead of you dogging me because I am a layman and I have no idea what I'm how to write in your particular language, let's yes. let's cross reference. Let me give you the data, and we can share in the in the the overall reward of it. See, it's yeah. funny that you would have that too, because then you have guys like Matt Most that have bred snakes that probably haven't been seen by that many people in the wild, like ever. Yeah, and it's like you're gonna, you're really gonna kind of discredit that guy when he's breeding species that no one else has or has even taken the time to to keep on any yep. long term scale. Matt is an excellent example. Um, I know that he he wrote up uh, his striped snake reproduction observations for her review and, mm-hmm. and sent it to me, and I. Gladly reviewed it. So he did an awesome job. God, so, so like, cool. yeah, we just need people, people like that. But one thing I would like to point out, because I am in that academic world, is I don't want you necessarily to think that like all the academics are sitting around, you know, kind of like Lord of the Rings, looking down on everybody else. <laughs> no, because no, no. I 
I was looked like when I went through this publication process, you know, I have my swanky PhD and all that. And I was the new kid on the block and they thumped the hell out of me, you know? So, uh, yeah, that's just, that's kind of one of the aspects of academia. That's just there, whether we like it or not, is that you're going to go, we are taught as scientists to question everything. Um, and one nice thing that I, I, I've enjoyed watching as I've gone from undergrad to, you know, where I am now, is that there's definitely a growing subsection of scientists who kind of see the value in giving people opportunity and listening, especially in natural history and ecology. Um, and and that that seems to be growing more than retracting, which is good. Right. Um, have you ever heard of a have you ever heard of an organization called Frog Watch? Yes, I've done Frog Watch. Okay, so I yeah. got I won't say it in a in a negative light, but I got I got roped in or like I don't want to say I got <laughs> but my good friend who works in the zoo field, she asked me, she says, Hey, will you and a couple of the snake guys come by the zoo and listen to this frog thing I want to do? You know, she kind of made it seem like she was like wanted us to hear her spiel before she went public with it. Mm-hmm come to find out it was a frog watch meeting and we got <laughs> you know indoctrinated into frog watch and that's a brilliant system because you yeah. find you find individual for those of you who don't know frog watch is an organization that basically educates people who are enthusiastic about amphibians on how to identify particular frog calls and toad calls and that way the individual the hobbyist can go into the field make observations on a scientific level they tell you how they want you to do it they give you uh, digital recordings of all the different local species to your area or not even to your area, to wherever and then you can say hey i think i heard x y and z on this night at this time in this weather conditions and then they recycle that data and they build it and learn from it i think that's a great way to bridge the hobbyist to the scientific level and vice versa it's, it's the ultimate way of working together yes and, and i know with frog watch you know that's been going around for almost might be over 20 years, but that I did it in grad school at Marshall and that was 2003, but they've totally been able to document range retractions and certain amphibian or certain frogs. Um, so, and then the opposite, several species of frog that were thought to be rare. I don't want to give the impression like they were deemed common from frog watch, but uh, populations were discovered that would have never been discovered because that's what's called citizen science. And when you have citizens doing the science, they're out doing it because they want to. And I can tell you, you know, everybody thinks that, oh, it must be awesome to be a field biologist. But when you make your, your hobby, your job, and you do it all the damn time, you can reach a level of burnout. And when I'm out in the field, like on a 15-day field trip, days one through nine, I'm in it to win it. And then it's usually around day 10 where I'm, I'm in it to win it. <laughs> and then by day 11, I'm kind of like, all right, sleep would be nice. Um, <laughs> I still love what I'm doing, but like that, that enthusiasm's there. And you know, if, if the highlight of your week is go out and do the frog watch um, route, as long as you do it and you, you're also just as enthusiastic about taking the data as you are finding the frogs, hearing the frogs, you know, you're going to probably last longer in the field, be happier out, to be out there. You know, this is a novelty and, and it's nothing but good. The, the birding community 
has been doing this forever. Uh, they do. They've been doing this thing called the Christmas bird count around Christmas time, um, for literally ever uh, since the middle part of the last century. And you know, it, the amphibian people, the hurt people, have, have started to kind of pick up on that. There's other efforts. There's something called Hurt Mapper, where you can kind of go and collect give, animals give and then put it up spots. on. Yeah, but the, then that has proven to be a little bit controversial because. You know, you have unscrupulous collectors that want to know where to go and get uh, you know, twin-spotted rattlesnakes yeah. from of course. Eye. Of course. Oh, yeah. So then they go up into the mountains and use that data, and that's the dark side of all this. So you, there's always that aspect that needs to be taken into consideration as well. So anyway. Yeah, well, good stuff. <laughs> yeah, we're at an hour and a half, man. If anybody has any questions, where can they find you? Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm older, you know, I'm in my forties. I'm not that old, but, uh, so Facebook's the best way. Just message me. Um, Zach Loafman. I'm also on Instagram. I'm giving Instagram a shot. It's I'm trying so to use that better. to recruit grad students. What was that? So it's so much better than Facebook. <laughs> I, I Dude, do like Instagram's it more. the best. Instagram <laughs> is the best. Yeah. But it's just Zach Loafman there as well. I, I've kind of dedicated Insta to herps, mm -hmm. animals. That's all I do. I just put up an animal picture a day. So, um, and since I wasn't in the field, there's no, there's no, hardly any crayfish there. It's almost all snakes and <laughs> lizards. Uh, but that's one way. And then the old school way is Zach Loafman, or sorry, zloafman at westliberty.edu is my email. You can email me. And anyone listening that would be interested in grad school and herpetoculture, shoot me a, an email. I've, I've picked up two graduate students through podcasts so far. Um, nice. And that's one of the reasons why I'll do this anytime I'm asked, because uh, like I said, I want to get, you know, kind of merge the worlds together and, and graduate students are a great way to do that. So with their thesis. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. yeah. All right, man. This All right. Great show. Let you have your night back. It's it's late. Yeah, man. And, uh, yeah, it's all good. Great talking to you as always, man. We really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. Um, loved it. It was fun. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna head out now. Awesome, man. <laughs> all Thanks right. Thanks again, brother. Thank you. Happy holidays. You too. Bye. You too. That was a great time. Very much so. He's man. He's he's always just a blast to talk to. He really is, man. You know, it's it's he's, just, he's part of the crew, you know. It's yeah. just easy to talk. We're having fun. Definitely. Well, this was episode one hundred and five of the Herpeticulture Podcast, part of the Herpeticulture Network. You should check out our fantastic sponsors, uh, and actually. Sean at MP Cages, he will be the sponsor for 2021 again. Um, yeah, I pretty much told him I was like, man, as long as you're going to keep doing it, you know, we'll keep keep you as part of the the gang. Heck yeah, man! So, uh, MP Cages and Exotics, awesome racks, awesome cages. Uh, he's going to be breeding some carpets and stuff in the not too distant future. Yeah, man, I'm I'm literally biding my time for him to do those albino Darwins, and I'm, those will be my first <laughs> albino Darwins from him. He's got some nice ones. Dude, the screamers. His, yeah, his are sexy. 
and then Steve Snakeshwary with his Venom Hot Sauce. If you're buying his Venom Hot Sauce, you are supporting the public education of non-snake people who think that Cottonmouth chased their uncle back in 1972. Yep, and copperheads sting you with their tail as a distractionary measure. Correct. Which I have recently proven to be untrue. <laughs> yeah, he does a lot of good work um, educating people. You know, he has uh, his own collection of educational animals. He does removals and stuff like that. And uh, if you're buying his hot sauce, you're helping him with that. And his hot sauce is very good. I actually, I want to get some more. I've, I've been, for whatever reason, man, like I've been eating flaming Hot Cheetos like crazy lately. And it's got me wanting more like spicy stuff. So is maybe, the season, maybe I'm pregnant. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. So I need to place an order and get some more of that because that stuff's good. I'm gonna put it on everything, everything. all of them, especially the cottonmouth sauce. That's that's the th. That's the thp sauce of choice is the cottonmouth sauce. We do we do love the swamp lions. That's right. Um, so we will see y'all Monday night for snakes and stogies. Yeah. Might see if if Matt McDowell wants to come on again and have a little Boyga episode. Absolutely. I was just talking to him earlier today, man. Yeah. We've been talking about doing it. We just haven't made it happen. It's been a busy it's been a busy like month for Snakes and Stogies as far as guests and stuff. So Yeah, but you know having great people on and great conversations and show and tell and it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how a lot of those episodes end up like that. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's absolutely. pulling out snakes and showing them off, and yeah, so. it's great, man. That's the beauty of having the live feed. You know, the people that want to listen to it as a podcast, they can enjoy it in their car or at work, mm-hmm. and then the people that want to sit and relax and just quote unquote hang out with us, that's what the video's for. Yeah, it's awesome. It's been a, I've really been enjoying that one though. That's been a lot of fun. I'm glad that it's kind of evolved into what it is, and so yeah. am I, brother. So am I. It's funny that it went from just Instagram live streams into. You know, the Facebook group and the, you know, the cigar holders and the samplers and the, you know, all that stuff. So soon to be Zippos. Yeah. I can't I'm wait. really waiting for you to get that. I think yeah. It looks it, so good. I have a feeling it'll come out good. And if it does, then we'll start, we'll start getting, getting an order. And uh, is it Calibri that makes the inserts for a standard Zippo that's actually a torch? There's a couple different companies that make them. Okay. I'm just going to keep it as a soft flame. Awesome. And just use it as is, you know, burns a little cooler, yeah, get a little more flavor out of cigars, all that good stuff. So, Love it. Yeah. So we will see y'all Monday night. Have a good morning, afternoon, evening. Enjoy their weekend. That's right. We only have, we're probably going to have like one more episode for the rest of the year because usually the last half of December, I'm, that's like off time. So We don't want to pull like an NPR and do like a drunken Christmas? Maybe. I don't know. It depends like... Schedule-wise, Christmas is going to be just a little different this year because we're not doing big a big get-together like we usually do. So, I don't know. I may have more free time this year. We'll see. All right. Play it by ear. We will play it by ear. So, everyone, thank you. Goodbye. Bye.